Hey, hey, loyal listener. If you are caught up on season two of Let's Make Work Human, the podcast, you know that we have had some amazing guests on the pod this time around, which we have totally loved. If you are caught up, circle on back and listen to some of those interviews because I'm telling you, our guests are incredible. But for today's episode, we decided to mix it up and have a chat, just the two of us, like we did in season one. May and I both enjoy talking about what we're seeing out there in the world on the internet, what it means to us and how it impacts our business and our thinking. May guides us this week through some funny, controversial, and powerful themes that are circulating around LinkedIn right now that we just know that you're seeing too. What we all see out there impacts us, and it was fun this week to explore those trends out loud. Let's dig in. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello. Hi, May. It's just us today. It's just us. Hello. Welcome back. It hasn't been just us for a really long time. So I know I miss just us. Me too. I like everybody else too, but it is really nice just to have you to myself. Here's what I propose for today. I have been screenshotting since I was a young child. No, <laughs> the last couple months, things that I would really like to talk to you about. And if anybody has ever tried to get on your schedule, it's not easy, folks. It's not easy. So me wanting to talk about random things I see on the internet, not high on the priority list for getting most time. So that's what I'm going to use it for today. I've screenshotted some pertinent things to the work world and to the world that I would love to get your, your thoughts on. And even better is your first reaction to. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what's coming on the internet. Now, this is qualified on the internet. Are these going to be random ass things you just pulled from the ether of the internet anywhere? Where have you pulled these? Yes. Okay. Various places, LinkedIn, Twitter, the world, Instagram when I was there, lots of stuff. So there's just, these are just various things that I think I'm going to talk about me and also a couple of our listeners, I'm sure. Maybe one or 600 of them, that they probably <laughs> see something and they wish that you were right there to talk to them about it because it either seems like a WTF or it seems like, wow, I wish I knew what Mo would say about this. So that's what I've brought today. So here's where we're going to start is that there was a tweet a couple weeks ago from Heidi N. Moore. This is what it says. It's for, she's responding to a router's, is that how you say it? Reuters, yeah. So they're saying that there's breaking. Elon Musk says that he's found a new CEO for Twitter. Remember this? And that she's going to be starting in six weeks, blah, blah, blah. Heidi responds to this by saying this is a classic glass cliff situation in which a failing company hires a woman to clean up messes made by arrogant men. Then she becomes the scapegoat because it's impossible to clean up. Mm. I read that and then I needed to know what a glass cliff was. So I looked it up. What is a glass cliff? (laughs) Phenomenon whereby women and members of other minority groups, such as those banned on race or disability, are overrepresented in leadership positions that are risky and precarious. The example that they give is the UK Prime Minister Theresa May and Brexit. Whether or not you think that was actually Theresa May's issue or not. So what do we think, Mo? Is the glass cliff real? Have you seen it? What do you think about this phenomenon? Oh, I think it's definitely real. And that's really interesting. I have not followed that particular piece. And I didn't see that tweet because I'm not really on Twitter. But it is interesting to me that was Elon's choice, right? After the mayhem that he caused through his own very, I would say, arrogant and self-centered focus around inserting himself into the company that he acquired and basically firing most everybody else to then say, and now I'm going to designate a leader who is going to fix all this, which seems like it could be pretty hard to do. 
to fix all this at this point for that system. I would be very skeptical if Elon Musk is going to allow any CEO to do anything based on what we've seen him wreak havoc with around the way he rules with authority, at least in the Twitter system, what we hear from his other systems. I'm not sure he's functioning with a full deck, like personally, in terms of, you know, like, I, I mean, he's just, he's like, he's just out there around the ways that he rolls from CEO land. In terms of what I think of as traditional behavior for a CEO, Elon Musk is not the poster child of what I would call excellence. So on the one hand, I could see that his move bringing in a woman CEO as actually a self-aware move. Maybe the board advised him to say, hey, if he even has a board, I don't really have a board anymore around, we need a real leader actually about this entity to protect shareholder value, in which case maybe she's the right choice. I can see that happening, but I can imagine that it would be a setup to her who would have to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Well, there's two things. One is like that I hear you saying is she might actually be the right choice. Yeah. But it might not actually be a glass cliff. Like right. the way I read a glass cliff is that they're like somebody sees that this is a really risky thing. They don't want to take the fall for it. Usually they're in a group that is not historically marginalized. They decide to put somebody who is historically marginalized in that position. And then when the company fails, they offer the blame to that person. Yeah. But that is one scenario. The other one that I'm hearing you say is maybe she's the right one and maybe it works. And in that case, Elon also gets touted as a success for that. Yes. For choosing that's right. her. That's which right. Which is like also garbage in my opinion, but like yes. whatever. So what is your advice or what do you think if somebody sees themselves as the person that got put on the glass cliff and they're there, like what happens? Yeah. I don't know, May. I think I'm a big believer in free will, right? And I think that if some, and I think this is one of the tensions that relates to the glass cliff for underrepresented groups is that even if it's a glass cliff, it's an honor to be asked. So if you're someone who is looking for a CEO role and you happen to get offered the one that is the CEO of, of Twitter and you think you're qualified to do that job, then that is a good thing. So mm -hmm. I don't, and I doubt in my knowledge, just like most examples of oppression, I doubt very much that any boards are like consciously saying, oh, let's give that to a black man or let's give that to a white woman or a disabled person just so that they can fail. I don't think it's conscious. Mm -hmm. I think it's unconscious, often probably motivated by an intention maybe around representation or, hey, now's a good time to mix it up. Let's bring a woman into this position <laughs> potentially. Yeah. Know? And if I were, I can picture a lot of scenarios where if that were asked of me, I probably would also say yes. And I think about the number of women that I know who are often asked or black professionals who are asked into a role where they're actually feeling, yes, my time has come. Like I've earned it. They're not thinking, oh, this is just happening for tokenism or because there's a glass cliff. They're like, this is a great opportunity. So part of me looks at that and says, good job, have at it, do a good job. The problem is if they fail, then that there's a risk that they will have attribution that's because of who they were and that that was a setup from the beginning. So I think it's really complicated. I think it's complicated. It reminds me now that we're just talking about this, that it reminds me of our talk about WeWork and yes. Theranos and that the risk a woman takes or heading Twitter as opposed to Adam, whatever frick his name is, takes landing WeWork is very different. It's not new news, but it's, I think sometimes it can look like it's equal. Oh, they both got the CEO ship and they both messed it up. Yeah. Except she went to prison and he right. got another angel investor. Yes. So Yeah. And part of that double bind for Elizabeth at Theranos was that her mentors were grooming her in the way that they knew how to groom leaders. Right. And she, I believe she did her level best to do that. Now I'm not saying she didn't also commit fraud because she did. And that's her, that's hers, right? She owns that. But to a certain degree, she was doing what she was being groomed to do. Mm -hmm. Adam Newman, on the other hand, was doing, he was doing what he was groomed to do as well by his circumstances, but he was held accountable for his misdeeds in a very different way, even to this day in terms of investments that he has received since the debacle that was WeWork. He hasn't really suffered, I don't think, a, a deleterious consequence in his own wealth or the esteem that investors have of his capacity, despite his nefarious claims and the disaster that he caused at WeWork as well. So there is a different standard that is held for insider groups and underrepresented groups, for sure. And it, it muddies the water of this glass cliff thing very deeply. But on the other hand, I like to imagine that people like the woman who was being appointed at Twitter earned the right 
to that job and will perhaps do a good job, which could be really tough with Elon Musk. And what will he be now, the chairman of the board? Oh, my God. Just the captain tweeter. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) The captain tweet master. The big kahuna in his own mind. Yeah. Okay. This is a great segue, actually, into this next one, which, okay, so this guy named Max Hurton tweeted this series of this person called Rob Dwyer Deck, who has launched 18 brands and exited six for $550 million. Okay. So in the world of monetary success, this dude looks good. All while recording 336 episodes of ridiculousness per year. Ridiculousness, I guess, is a podcast. I don't know. Spending 30% of his time with his family. What? And how does he do all that? So much to unpack in here. But then the very bottom part of the tweet is by tracking every hour of his day. So this dude tracks every single hour of his day in a spreadsheet and does everything by the minute. And that's what he's attributing his monetary success to. He sounds super fun. Yeah, they just fell on the floor. He sounds like a barrel, alas. And so this, so what is, I think I, I know what my reaction is, but yeah. what are you, why are you asking this question? Because what are you noticing? A lot of things. But let me just tell you real quick. I got the other tweet of what it is. This is what he does every day. Gets up at five in the morning. Brain trains, whatever that is. Meditates. Works out. Maintains a clean diet. Doesn't drink and takes supplements. He calls those the core seven. When he realized every time he completed those seven, he felt happier. Here's my reaction. My first reaction was like, oh, I got to talk to Mo about this. Number two is that seems like a ridiculous plan because I've never heard you tell a CEO to do that ever. No. I've never heard you coach a CEO to do that. Every hour of every day. Also, does he? There are there any minutes in this spreadsheet where he is – being with his beloved family, friends, or community? Or are there any moments when he's actually just like kicking back and watching Netflix? No Netflix kicking back. But <laughs> there is 30% of his time is with his family. 30% of the year. 30% of the year is with his family. So I guess what I guess I have two reactions. The one thought I have, the first thought I have is like, how nice for him. <laughs> because it would be nice, wouldn't it? If you had a spreadsheet that would tell you where to be when, and all you had to do is show up for that thing for yourself, and then you'd feel happy without having to deal with anybody else's shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. My, what does my child need? What does my employee need? What about my clients who are upset about this or that? That's the stuff that derails the day. Yeah. That's one question I have. The other question I have is that, and you and I have talked about this before, this obsession that we hear often in the productivity arena around like getting up at 5 a.m. and doing Seriously. all things, right? This is not, we know from research that one of the most important keys to our wellness is at the top of our shelter model is sleep. sleep. And yet we have this like obsession with the idea that the earlier you get up, the better you can get stuff done before the rest of the world is up. Like I don't, I, to me, that's a particular fallacy yeah. You know, that I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I mean, it's cool that this guy has had this success, but I guess I don't buy that he's that he's happy. I also find myself thinking, I wonder if the poor guy has had the mental health support he needs for his OCD. Seriously. Just because it's not the human, I'm not qualified to diagnose, but it seems a tiny bit rigid in the context of the world and what the world can throw at you. So I found myself thinking, I wonder, he's surely had some failures in all these many successes. And so I wonder where he puts those, like the moments when he's grieving the big mess up that he had or whatever. Yeah. And the thing that makes me think it's a trap often to think that if you just make more rules for yourself, you will do better. And I think actually, I'm just going to say this, you may or may not agree, but I think that happens in the coaching space a lot, that if you just make your life more rigid, if you put more rules on it, if you rein yourself in, you will be successful. And that just seems so diminishing, number one. And number two, if I work for you and I'm having a real struggle in my life, I'm not going to you because you seem like you can handle everything because you've yeah. got your life in an Excel spreadsheet. That might be what you actually tell me to do. And I don't yeah. want to do that. Or right. I can't do that because yeah. I have a three and a half year old who runs my house or whatever. Like <laughs> right. that, it's, it seems like you're just isolating yourself from 
the fullness of what it could be by restricting yourself. Yeah. And also by attributing the productivity, like in my mind, like attributing the productivity to that. And so if I don't know what this, what's this guy's name, Mark or whatever, if I were to (laughs) sit down and talk to him, I'd be really curious about what else does he think has contributed to his success? Because my guess is there's some other important (laughs) things like key relationships, right? like his ability to sell, like the knowledge he has about the business brands that he's built like happening to have a happening to have a good idea at the time that the world needed like right. those are sometimes also very much contributing to our success not the schedule so i think you're right that there's this hijack we do and i think you're right also that coaching sometimes falls into this like you can be is it buys into this notion of bootstrap mentality yeah that if only you do the things that others say they've done to be productive that you too will do that and i guess for me there's so much that is problematic about that because totally. then i attribute my own deficit i say i'm not succeeding and yeah. it must be because i don't have my life in an excel spreadsheet when really it might be that there's other circumstances in my life that have kept me from succeeding totally and that are related to privilege I have or privilege I don't have, or just a bad series of things that happen that I have had to deal with because bad shit happens sometimes to people. So I can't compare myself and my success to someone like that. If that's the only way to be productive that I'm going to find myself wanting. There is another thing though, made that I'm noticing, and it is this, some of my friends and family members that are in recovery, like in, in particular recovery from addiction, have definitely educated me and shared with me the value that they have discovered in their own journey of recovery of routine and having predictability. Like we know we hear that as parents, that there's a benefit to routine for children and stuff. So I don't think that it's all bad. Like I, I think that having boundaries around how we utilize our time, having some commitments that to ourselves that we keep on the calendar, no matter what, yeah. Yeah. I can see the value of that. And I think it helps. It does. There is some value for many people that that can help them do well. But I don't agree. I think it takes it far over the top to make that how somebody can make bank. Yeah, I think it it swerves very quickly into the lane of diet culture. Like I think that's probably why I screenshotted it because I'm so used to hearing that message, but not in the form of monetary success, but in terms of being enough as a woman. Yes. In what my body looks like because of how much I am able to restrict myself and put rules around myself. And I see it in terms of money and budgeting. Like if you can't stick to a budget, you must not be good enough. If you can't stick to a diet, you must not be good enough. If you can't stick to a schedule that is so restrictive that you then become successful, you must not be good enough. And it's, oh, that's like an old, I'm used to that. I've, I've heard that song before. What I think even more dangerous about it is that it's tied to so much around just like that it's only monetary success that we're measuring. And what that's really funny. You gave a lot more grace in terms of what else he might have. I was thinking maybe his spouse makes $50 million at her job and that's why he's monetarily fine. Maybe he was invested in the first totally. 100 mil. If somebody gave me 100 mil, I wouldn't need an Excel spreadsheet to probably leverage that. I go to the gym every day at noon. If I had a million, no problem. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I love the comparison to diet culture. And it is, you're right, it's connected to the ways that our society sometimes seems obsessed with having one roadmap for what good looks like and that everybody else is not enough. And so that in, in the diet culture example, that's so powerful. I was also thinking about the attribution error we make and like (laughs) a good, a good comparison is some of our listeners might know Alex Honnold, who is one of the foremost climbers in the world, right? And Honnold can climb things that most humans can't. We're obsessed with him. He's been in movies. Like it's really amazing. As a former climber myself, I'm amazed at what he does. But most of us are not him, both in terms of his physical ability, but also his capacity to handle the stress of danger is something about his brain that is actually really different than say my brain. And so he's got different superpowers that I don't have. So if I compare myself, if I'm a climber and I look at Alex Handel and I think that's what good looks like, there's just no way I'm ever going to be enough because he's like an anomaly. He has something very special about him that most people don't have. And so this guy, it might be true for this guy too. So really that's what I'm going to use as the benchmark. 
Totally. Seems dangerous. Seems dangerous to me. Here's my next piece. Allie Maynard tweeted June 18th. I think a lot about how my grandpa was the sole provider for his wife and four kids. He built a four-bedroom house with a vegetable garden on a hill in New England, in the suburbs, put his kids through college, took family vacations every year, and retired at 62. And he Mm. was a mailman. Mm. And then that paired with the newest net worth to be financially comfortable stats that just came out. And number one is San Francisco. And your net worth in order to be financially comfortable, whatever that means, is $1.7 million. Twelfth on the list is Houston. And you have to be worth $606,000 to be financially comfortable there. In between are Southern California, New York, Seattle, Chicago, Atlanta, Denver, Phoenix, which you can imagine. So what are your thoughts? Oh, I feel sad about that. That makes me feel really sad. It makes me feel fearful for the generations to come because they can't access the life that person's grandfather had. But it also makes me feel like we've changed the rules, but we haven't changed the expectation to to idolize or to think that guy, that grandpa who was the mailman who did all this, that he was somehow better than us because he could do it is, a, again, it's, a, it's an attribution error. The context in which he was able to succeed in that way was related to the time in which he lived. Mm-hmm. And that's true for my parents and grandparents as well in terms of the cost of living, the relationship between wage and cost of living. And what has happened in our recent time where we have wage disparity that is so enormous that the wealthiest of the wealthy are getting wealthier and the rest are actually getting poorer. And so that de- dealing with the wage disparity issues in our country are what's keeping that from being realistic for most of us today. It's not realistic that if you live in California, if you live in San Francisco, it's not realistic that everybody will have 1.5 million in order to live comfortably mm-hmm. in that area. So what happens when you have $10,000? How are you living then? or 10,000 net worth, I should say. How are you going to live then in San Francisco? You probably aren't. Or you're going to be living in multiple families in one house. You're going to be commuting two to three hours in order to get to your job. And that's like an extremely stressful lifestyle. So the rich get richer because they can live in those places and the poor get poorer. And I have just a tremendous amount of concern about that for future generations who also want the same things that we all want. We want to feel that we have a place to live that's safe. We want to be able to care and feed for our beloveds and have some pleasure in our life. That's a, those are human needs. A flipping um, vegetable garden, y'all. The piece it brought up for me is that it's going to complicate recruiting. Because if you if your company is in Cincinnati and you find a person that lives in the Bay Area and they are the perfect person for your job, that's a very complicated conversation to have. It is. Because that person has to make a certain amount of money not to own a Bentley, but to right. buy vegetables. So totally. are you hearing that conversation out there about where your headquarters or where you are located and then trying to re- remote re- recruit? And what that's entailing now, because it's not just about talent. I'm hearing that, especially for certain specialty fields, like technical fields that have aggregated in areas like the Bay Area, where we do have a lot of talent worldwide that's living in that space. But I think what I see more often, May, is that those kinds of specialized talent areas in high cost of living areas are actually choosing to move out to less expensive areas because they can work from anywhere and they can have a higher quality of life. So I think there's some evacuation of urban areas. And then we're seeing an uptick in cost of living in rural areas or smaller areas. My town's a prime example in Bend, Oregon. Yours might be as well. I think it is in Wyoming, which Mm -hmm. is that we have a lot of people moving who are very high paid because of where they came from, but their cost of living actually went way down. But their cost of living being down is much higher than the people who already live there. So we're seeing in Bend, Oregon, we're seeing teachers, firemen, policemen, nurses who cannot afford to live in our community because wealthier workers from the Bay Area in particular, which is just south of us, have moved to Bend. And they're happy to find a house for $800,000 because they only could afford a tiny house at $1.5 million in California. But in Bend, they can order a really a pretty nice house for that amount. So that means that the people who live there can't afford it. Yeah, it elevates the cost of living. And I worry a lot about that. But I think it can happen in both directions. And it will affect recruiting. It will. It is. It will. 
And it is, and it will continue to, because people are going to need, it's like the lid is off around regional, regionalization of your workforce in many jobs, certainly in any white collar jobs. Yeah, it's a tricky problem. I think too, it becomes tricky because it launches businesses into the conversation about gentrification, how many communities you can care about at one time and how many you should care about at one time. Right. And I think that that hasn't necessarily been the conversation before when everybody was coming into the office and yes. you knew what community you were part of. And now because everybody can have arms into many different communities, you have to know that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it also strikes me that there is a the ge geographical moves required for cost of living do impact the local communities. Like one of the articles I remember seeing early on in COVID days, and I'm hearing more and more about it now, is that, for example, in we're seeing this in cities, like we're seeing it in Portland, Oregon, in San Francisco, in Seattle, where the downtown core has actually had a denigration of lifestyle. Because as the workers stopped being in the downtown core, stopped commuting into downtown core, the local businesses, the restaurants, the coffee shops, the services where people would come to work and then they'd go have a lunch are no longer there. So yeah. those businesses are closing down. We have more homeless people who are, that are temporary houseless who are forced to live in those urban areas, which further degrades the opportunity for businesses because they're dealing with crime and issues related to houselessness. So it's the systemic impact is significant. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's one of those issues that everybody likes to talk about. And then when it gets to like the nitty gritty of how to solve it, it's everybody's got to really care about it in order for it to change. Got to care about it. And it's micro solutions in every community and for every employer. Like it, that's what strikes me. We, there's not going to be any big blank other than a universal income. It would be nice. Yeah. We probably are going to be looking at consistent micro efforting to deal with these kinds of disparities day in and day out. Like it impacts all of us. It impacts totally. all of us. Totally. Okay. I just saw this stat on LinkedIn. Just know that it was promoted, but it was an ad, but it's from Gallup. And it's just, all it says is 51% of workers are actively looking for a new job. Do we mm. think that's a lie? <laughs> Do we think this is an ad? Do we think that's real? What does that tell you? What does that mean? It's interesting because the Deloitte study on well-being just came out as well, which has a little bit of a back end to that statistic, which is that a very high percentage of employees are looking for a job that cares about their mental health, their mm -hmm. well-being, about their well-being. And so that statistic from Gallup is interesting to me. I don't, first of all, I generally believe Gallup's data because they are a database organization and they invest a lot in getting the data they need. Like all data, I don't know enough about <laughs> yeah. the database. Like, I don't know how, is this all large businesses, over 10,000 employees? Is it small businesses under 1,000? Is it public sector? I don't know enough about the data set to say that. I do think that it's an interesting statistic that relates to a trend we're definitely seeing, May, and you probably can relate to this too, which is that there's a lot of discernment right now in the world of work around, is this job working for me? Is it working for me in a more holistic way? And I think COVID has really raised the roof on that. In Even in professions, we haven't typically thought of it, like healthcare. Yeah. I was reading an article the other day about physicians who are coming under, under, they're basically being bullied online for things like vaccine behaviors and providing vaccines and things like that. And that kind of cyber bullying really impacts, of course, their satisfaction at work. So a being a physician, as I've understood it in my lifetime, it's usually, it's such a lot of schooling, but it's often a career decision that you make for life. And that's not happening right now. Mm -hmm. Physicians are being like, maybe not, maybe I'm 45 and maybe I'm done. I want to do something else, which is what you invested 15 years of schooling and you're going to do something else. And I think that's related to the discernment that connects to that statistic, which is that people are looking at a broader array of needs that work fulfills. And so they're not necessarily just saying satisfied with where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. So I think I probably believe it. Welp, you heard it here, people. <laughs> okay. Which drives me to this next one, which is there's a new term out there. I don't know if it's going to stick or not, but it's called career journeying. And career journeying is essentially what your data pointed to in Fit Matters that mm. Gen Zers and millennials are on this career journey and that it's actually just part of it. That's what your career is now, is that it's a journey, which mm. is very romantic and also horrifying. There's this quote by 
Norm O'Hagan that a career can be more like a map. You draw that ties together your interests, what roles you play, and what environments you want to inhabit so that you can move around it fluidly over time, maybe even continuing to draw the map as you go. What do you think? I think it's accurate. I think it's I think it's real for the world today. I think that and I actually kind of like the language of journeying because it a word that Cami Dunaway and I talked a lot about when we were writing Fit Matters was this idea of the evolution of our work. We can't see the evolution to the point of retirement of what we'll be doing when we're just starting out our career. And we we can't see the edge of the map because we don't know. And what we don't know is what will enliven us, what opportunities will we push ourselves to take, which ones will fall in our laps, what will we say no to or yes to that may turn us on to something different. I always think of that old game show, was it Jeopardy, when you had door number one, door number two, door number three, right? Mm -hmm. We can't see behind the doors until we get to the doorway Mm -hmm. in our careers. And so I, I like that language of journeying because it suggests that it's actually all an experiment, you know, and that we're going to try something and now we're going to try something and then we're going to learn and we're going to maybe move, allow that to leverage us to move into a different direction. Where I think that gets really hard is in careers that require lots of technical training and expertise, because at that point we've made a lot of investment in a certain career. And I've certainly seen that with some professions. I've had a number of clients, for example, who have invested a lot in engineering credentials, and then they get into the practice of engineering and they find that it isn't very fulfilling for them. So that's tough because you've invested a lot of time in a career that maybe won't be where you stay. But I think it's a powerful mindset. It's certainly different than the mindset that we had 20 years ago around the way we would pick a career. Yeah. Okay. So here's my generational question is that if I'm a Gen Zer and I walk into a new job and I say that I'm on a career journey, Like I imagine that doesn't go over very well with someone who's expecting me to be maybe a career loyalist, (laughs) regardless of what my training is or whatever they're expecting. Because the story I'm making up is that manager is hoping that they just hired me because they just asked me what my five-year plan was in the interview, even though that's a terrible question. And let's please, for the love of God, stop asking it. But anyway, that's an aside. But that's – so how do you balance – or maybe not balance, but how do you pep talk the managers in this place of that when someone sees their career as a journey, it doesn't mean that they don't value the spot that they are with you. Yeah. Um, and how to unprogram that since they won't be with you forever, that doesn't mean not to invest in them now. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. I love that question. And, and I, I hear you. And yet I find myself thinking, come on, employers, you know what's real. You don't have loyalty to your employees either. You can't promise, no employer in the land can promise their employees that they're going to be able to keep them there until they get their watch in 30 years. That doesn't happen anymore. Why? Not because employers are horrible, but because they can't foresee what will be the trends that buffet their business. So they do their best to say, actually, so they, I guess what happens in that interview is we share our dreams and hopes. Right. So if I'm that Generation Z or I'm a millennial, I say, here's my hope. Like, I'm interested in this job because I hope to learn these skills. I'm really interested in this sector. And I'd really like to attach myself to a workplace that, that feels like it suits me right now. And if the employer is, how long do you think you can be loyal to that career? The honest answer is, I actually don't know because I am not in that work yet. But I can tell you what I dream. And I think the employer is probably being more honest if they say that works with us. <laughs> as well, because we want people like you in jobs like this. We want to invest in you so that you stay. And we're realistic that for a variety of circumstances, you may not stay. And I have actually an interesting example, May. I was talking to somebody who is who runs permitting in a county office. This is for land use permitting and very busy county office. They're having a really hard time recruiting people into the permitting office. Now, these are pretty good jobs. They have very good benefits. They have a lot of longevity and they are filled with baby boomers. So they're trying to get younger people to join. But what they're noticing is people come out of college, they join willingly at first because they're attracted to the benefits. It's stable hours and things like that. But then there start to be some irks, some cracks in the system. There are two main ones that they're noticing. One, is that this particular office has a policy that everybody has to work in the office. Mm. There's no remote work allowed for any percentage of their time, which for some of these workers is challenging because of lifestyle decisions. The other is that it takes a year to get fully trained in the permitting process. So by the time these young 
employees have been there four months, they still, they're only a third of the way into their training to be able to do permitting. What? And I'm like, exactly. What? Like, first of all, can we speed up that training process <laughs> so that I can get interested more often? And also, by the way, is that all I'm ever going to do here is permitting? Because if that's, if you're training me up so that I will do this forever and ever, I probably am going to have my eye to other things because nobody wants to do anything forever. That's just not how we're wired as humans. And also where is there some room for flexibility, which is a huge currency. So here's an employee who can't get the talent that they want, but they're also, they haven't been able to make the move. And this includes, of course, in the case of county government, it includes making the move with their commissioners to say, actually, we need to creatively think about how we get talent to work for the county. We need to think about how we're going to offer some things that are more appealing so that people both come and say yes to these jobs, but also so that they stay long yeah. enough to really add the value that they want, which is a trained up permitter because every county needs land use permits to be approved. Are you enjoying listening to May and I react to some of the LinkedIn stories on the podcast today? We would love to know what you think about what we're saying and about those actual stories. Send us a note at info at We really want to hear from you. Also, we can really use your help right now sharing this podcast in the world at large. Neither May nor I is famous, except maybe in our own minds, but we want more people to listen to and benefit from Let's Make Work Human. It really helps us if you share the pod in your network, in your community, in your family. It also helps a lot if you leave a review wherever it is that you listen. And if you like or download your favorite episode in terms of all the stats that go into the algorithm. We want to get our message into the hands of more business owners and brave people leaders who have the power to change. Thanks in advance so much for helping us out and, as always, for listening. So I think that for employers, it's important to begin, if you haven't already, becoming even more creative with the ways in which you're going to appeal to the talent who's on a journey and if their journey considers you. Yeah. Because if their journey considers you, then that's good. Right. But you got to think about the partnership as a contract that is dynamic. Yeah. Not yeah. fixed. I still can't get over that. It takes a year to be trained. I know now. And there are jobs like a friend of mine is a paramedic and he was describing to me the training process, very long training process for good reason, right? It's highly technical. There's yes. lots of job shadowing. And in that context, there's like at each stage of his training, there was a, additional significant responsibility. Can you go out on call alone? What kinds of accidents yeah. can you do? Yeah. But in this county job, it was like, I, cause I asked that, I'm like, are there different, more challenging ways that you get to grow over the course of the year? And they're like, oh, that's just like to learn the permitting process. So that's not that appealing probably for someone who wants to learn and grow. Yeah. It seemed like low hanging fruit there. Right. County permitting offices listening. But I, yeah, I think there's still a little bit of a, if you were to say I'm on a career journey, I think it might still look flaky. It might yeah. still seem flaky, even though it's real. And even though it's true, I'm looking forward to the time when that's not flaky. And when actually that's the question in the interview, mm. which is like, what is your career journey that you can see so far? And yeah. what part do we play in it? Oh, I love that. And like, yeah. be okay with the answer. And that the answer is, however it goes, is okay, but plays yes. into the decision that you make. Yes, I love that. And what is our part in it? And when Kevin and I were doing our research, which as made at this point was in was primarily done for Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, our most of our research was done in 2015 and 2016. That was 600 years ago. I know. But back then, even a lot of the statistics we were looking at were predicting that entering the workforce, most people entering the workforce back then would have not two to three different careers, but eight to 10 different careers, not just different jobs, actual different career pivots. So things have really sped up around the ways that we are exploring, the ways that we are considering new things, new opportunities. And I think that the wise employers, the ones that are really making themselves part of good talent's journey are recognizing that. Do you think we're in a post-career world then? That's a great question. I don't think we're in a post-career world. I think we might be in a post-loyalty to your employer world. <laughs> 
and also loyalty to your employee. And again, it's different if you're a mega company or you're a small company. Because if I'm a mega company, I can move my people around. I can send them for global assignments. I can give them different functional options. I have enough. I've got 30,000 employees. There's a space that I can grow you. But if I have 100 employees and I'm growing at five employees a year, there's not a lot of like hierarchical growth or maybe functional growth available to me. So it makes sense that not all of my employees would be here for the duration of their lifetime. And also two income families, one career maybe takes priority. So I think that there's a, I think that we need to think about it just exactly the way you said it, which is that we can be part of each other's story for a while, but we need to recognize the impermanence of those contractual relationships and not be daunted by them, be open to them and get as much time that's mutually beneficial as we can. Because we know we don't want to, if we've trained somebody up for five years or 10 years, we don't want to lose them. But it's naive, I think, to think that we will keep them forever. Therein lies the hard conversation, right? If somebody's about to journey on after you've invested a lot in them, the question is not, okay, see you later. The question is like, why are you going? Why are we breaking up? Is it something that we can't fix together? But it's very brave to have that kind of conversation because you don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's brave in both parts because we might have to say, we might have to be willing to do something we we haven't done before. We're seeing this, for example, in a lot of companies, some of the talent ought to be retiring are baby boomers. But baby yeah. boomers are not actually retiring. I know. Um, what the heck, I know. And one of the reasons is the cost of living that we've talked about and caring for elder parents and trying to do that. But another is that they are, they like their work. They work their whole careers <laughs> age and they're like, I'm not ready. I hear that from baby boomers. I'm a, I'm a young baby boomer generation extra, but I hear that from them. And so I think for employers, that's, that could be seen as something horrible. Like we're getting the brain drain of losing our wise, experienced people. It could also be something delightful, which is, okay, cool. What would it look like if we retained you in a different configuration, part-time, flexible hours, remote work, maybe as a mentor or coach so that you can still feel activated by your work, but we, and we still get to benefit from your talent, but it's not the way it was for us previously. I think there's a lot of room for that. And you asked about the post-career world. I, the research that came in, I found people are moving different careers, but they're, but they aren't always 180 degrees. And if we look at someone like you, you're a good example, right? You were studying pre-med, you ended up going to art school, you've worked at it as a professional photographer, you, you joined our firm as a creative director, you also now are heading up some of our community efforts as a director of community. At the point at which you decide that you're ready to move into your next iteration, it's probably going to be something adjacent to what yeah. you've been doing. It's unlikely that you would say, I'm going to go back to school to become a long haul trucker. You might, but yeah. it's likely that you're not. And in which case, as your employer, I might have some capacity to be like, oh, that's interesting, May. You're really interested in expanding this part of your work. How can I help you? Yeah. And still utilize you for the projects that we have at Momentum. And I'm not hoping that happens, of course, but I think that's in as small employers, I think sometimes we have even more flexibility for that kind of career shifting and moving. Totally. And this is also makes a call to often I feel like we're talking to bosses and managers, but this is also a call to the employee that if you're feeling like you are about to journey on, try a different conversation. Yeah. Of, See you later. Is there a braver conversation that you can have besides goodbye? Is there a braver conversation that you can start and trust that your employer is not going to say, since we're having this conversation, then you're fired, but trust that your employer wants to keep you. Yes. And that they want to grow you and then offer them the opportunity to grow you instead of lose you. I think oftentimes we see these as like transactional relationships and that's it. And while they are transactional in certain places, it's okay to be transactional also inside of a brave conversation. Like you can say, hi, I'm thinking about this thing, but also before I want to, before I do that, I would like to try this with you. And is there a way we can flex to fit that concern? One of the employers who I think is doing this really is actually in Oregon where we live. It's Tillamook Creamery. She said ice cream. And I did a talk for them during COVID about career passions and stuff related to Fit Matters. And one of the things I learned in the process is that they're very, they're in a very rural area. Yeah. Right. They're, and they run dairy, they have dairy farms and then manufacturing facility. And so getting and keeping the talent they need is tough. So they make a really big investment on opportunity within Tillamook for people through investing in learning and education. And people actually make pretty big moves 
functionally in the organization yeah. because they want to retain the talent that they have. So they're having those conversations much more bravely than I see in a lot of companies. Hey, I'm in HR, but actually what I'd really like to do is move into manufacturing. What would it take for me to become a production lead on at the plant? Typically an employer might be like, but that's not been your path. You're an HR generalist. Okay. What would be that path that the employer could help me make? I, and I think that's cool. Totally cool. Also, that's why that ice cream is so good. Oh, my God. And their cheddar cheese. Thank you very much. Did you know they have a machine called the Cheddar Master? Fun fact. No, but that sounds <laughs> delicious. Whatever it does. <laughs> I don't know what it does either, but it masters the cheddar. Okay, this segue is just so easy. I feel like I've said that word like 60 times, but this is actually like very handy, this whole conversation. There's a book out right now by Bruce Feeler, and it's about looking for a job for anybody who needs it. But the quote that struck me the most from the book is that the people who are happiest in what they do, the people who find the most meaning and therefore are the most successful on their own terms, they don't climb, they dig. They go looking inside of themselves. And before you respond, Hmm. I want to know what you think of that, first of all, because I think there's a lot of, there's still a lot of pressure to climb. There's a lot of pressure to grow and find a new thing or move around or move up, especially still, and that there's not a lot of conversation around digging and about knowing yourself, which is why I think the Leading People program exists, because Mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of encouragement to dig instead of climb. And so I'm interested in what you think about that and whether you think that is like a novel thought or if you think that is like part of the problem is that we've just been ignoring this conversation of that you can do self work when you get to the top. (laughs) Like that it doesn't, there's no place along the climb. Oh my gosh. I actually think it's brilliant the way that that he's saying that. And we, although we have discovered this as well in our research, which is that the people who do seem to thrive more at work own their own thriving. Mm. And and so that dig metaphor for me is rich around how are you having the conversations that contribute to your thriving and also negotiate with your employer because not everything is possible. If I say to my employer, I'm really struggling with being in the office every day, I want to work two days remote, and my employer's actually I'm we can't do that because we're in a customer facing position. But what we could do would be one day if we could get the phones ported to your house, if you have a quiet space like that, then we can be, then we're, now we're talking about what is possible because not, it's not always possible. So I like it. I also think that it gets us out of the model that climbing is the only way that I can earn more because I think that presents a problem again in small companies where maybe there's not much hierarchical growth If people really love it at that company. They don't leave. So that means there's not going to be a managership or a directorship or a vice presidentship because those people are happy and thriving, so they're not leaving their jobs. So what else is available to me if it's not hierarchical? I love that idea, which is actually there could be a lot of things available to me. But also, what if I'm a functional expert? What if my passion, I met a guy one time who was this way, his passion was data analytics. And he actually was, he became a director in his company, but he was like, I don't want to be a director. I don't actually love supervising people. What turns me on professionally is like the data analytics, the detail of the science. I want to get in there with the numbers and study and make meaning out of it. And so his company was able to say, that's valid. We actually need you doing that. And so we can pay you an equivalent salary to, let's say, a director to do that thing for us as an individual contributor. And I think that's really powerful too, to recognize that there's expertise and then there's also leadership track. Their hierarchy is not the only way that you can grow financially or in terms of benefits that come to you in the company. I like it. I also, as you were telling me about that, May, that book, I was thinking, I was channeling my inner Cy Wakeman, right? Which is, you're not a victim Mm -hmm. of your circumstance. And I love size position on this because it it reminds us that when we are an employee, we have chosen to be an employee. Mm -hmm. And because it's a choice, we can undo that choice anytime we want. And I think sometimes employees forget that. Mm -hmm. They act like they're an indentured servitude. It's like you're not actually, no one is forcing you to work at that employer. You have options. Now, the options may not be great. You're in a recessed area and there's only one employer here that works for you. And so in order to get a different job, maybe you have to move. That's not a, I'm not saying that's a desirable or easy option, but it's helpful to remember I have options. I am choosing the work I'm choosing in the place I'm working. And because it just gives the employee back some of that control, it doesn't make them a victim of the circumstance of their employer. So I like that. 
Yeah. Okay, I have two more. This one is from a post on LinkedIn from a person that I follow named Lily Zhang, and they are a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant. And this is what they posted two weeks ago at the beginning of Pride Month. As a DEI consultant, I go where organizations and leaders need help. But as a queer, non-binary, trans person of color, I won't go where I will be unsafe. At this point in time, unsafe means 19 out of 50 states in the U.S. with the potential for that number to continue rising. So mm. my first thought reaction to this was like, wow, that's horrible. The second is, For our listeners, Lily, just clarify what Lily's referring to. Laws that don't oh, yeah. protect LGBTQ plus right. and trans in particular, probably. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. One, that's horrible personally, right? To feel that unsafe. Two, I was thinking about it's horrible that the organizations that need the most help are probably mm -hmm. in the most unsafe states and they're mm -hmm. not going to get DEI support from someone who is very good at it. Yeah. So there's two red flags that raised for me, which was like, whoa, number one, there's DEI consultants who are not working in those mm -hmm. places for very mm -hmm. valid reasons. And number two, what are we doing about it? <laughs> like, what are those companies doing about it that want that work? Does it mean it's just not open to them because they're not in a safe place? Or two... Can they do something to do that? And so I'm bringing it to you as a reaction of, are there places that you will not work? And if you were to make that choice, what would that feel like? And how would you have that conversation with somebody from that company that came to you for work? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I think a couple of thoughts I would have. One is that thankfully, there are probably DEI consultants that represent the majority that can serve those companies when LGBTQ plus DEI consultants may not feel safe because of the law in those states. Like I, I would hope that some others of us could step in to carry the water around actually if a company is actually interested in doing this work, we are safe, potentially protected by the law as someone who's hetero or cisgender that I could still carry the water. I think that's important. The other thing it points out though so glaringly, May, is the intersection between policy, government policy and legislation and organizational safety. Totally. It's connected. Mm -hmm. Another example that's similar that I heard an employer talking recently about was that their company policy advocates, their insurance company provides the morning after pill for women who want an abortion, but some of their areas of operation have made that illegal. So how are they to navigate that? Does that mean an employer who works in a state who has made the morning after pill illegal has to travel to another state? Are they going to cover for that employee to go do that or how that it's just, it's really complicated. And yeah. I think this is where it's a reminder for me that organizational life and governmental policy are not separate. Totally. They are not separate. And so we have to be activist citizens to allow our workplaces to be fit for human life. We have to care about what our government policies are. Yeah. And I think in our binary society right now that we've had in the last decade of political kind of horror has made it such that it's either or black and white and we've got these camps. Yeah, totally. Great answer. The other thing it brought up for me was like those companies have LGBTQ 2A plus members yes. working in it totally. in those states. So yes. if your consultant won't go to that place, Think about how horrifying it might be for the people that work there and like how necessary it must be for that work to get done. And yeah. it also brought to me in terms of you and I that like that partnership with consultants in that space becomes even more important, not because of the work getting done, but because of the width and breadth that it needs to have. Yeah. If there is a person that can't deliver it somewhere and you're like you as a white woman can do that, the partnership isn't about getting the work. The partnership is about getting the work done. Yes, yeah, like, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the way I can use privilege with grace. Yeah. And it's just, for me, it's the same thing as how I might use my able-bodiedness with totally. grace. I think what's interesting, you asked another question, which I didn't answer, which was like, are there companies that I would not work for or companies where I don't feel safe? Or places. Or places. Yeah. Or organizations. And it reminds me of something. And so the answer has, for me, so that question is, yes, there are places that I would not work because of values disconnection. 
I would say it's few and far between because I tend to come from a mindset of, hey, if we're on the inside, if we're helping, then we can help mm -hmm. to change that. But I am. I was also thinking about it, something that happened early in my career. One of my mentors, Ann Smolo, we were a client a company. We were for got a big contract in an Asian country, and I can't remember where it was. It might have been Japan. And Anne was the she was the client rep, and the and she was scheduled to be the primary consultant, and was very involved in the design and writing it. And when it came time to actually go to that country to visit, it was requested that she not be the primary consultant on the station because they wanted a man. And it was really a tension inside because there were members in our own organization that were like, we should honor what they want, right? They want to receive this message from a male, but Anne was the one we thought was the best position to deliver the work. And they ended up deciding to send a man. And that was really hard on her and felt very demoralizing. And I don't know if they made the right decision, but I do know the work went well and it was a long-term contract and Anne did go the following year to mm -hmm. that country and form some good relationships. But I think that's a good example of, oh, we make changes about where can we affect change. And part of the concern that people in our company had would be that it was a setup for her to go when they were actively resisting hearing the message from her. Totally. Which I can see some wisdom in that, but ooh, tough pill to swallow. Yeah, this is a place of growth that I've had in the last few years of working with you is to see the long game on many things and that organizations are not ready for certain things and that the bravest thing that organization can do actually is to know that they're not ready and to voice it. You and I have seen multiple occasions where if they do something that they're not ready for, it causes a much larger explosion than if they were to go easy into, into that swift dark night. But that was hard for me to stomach not that long ago because I wanted swift change to happen because I'm in a hurry. And I feel impatient about that. And I can see that happening in terms of this too, of, that I don't want people to get harmed in terms of not wanting to be the one that goes in and does the work that they got contracted for because they're the best at it. But their identity bars them from being able to do it. And I'm holding that with some tenderness of the organization just isn't quite ready. And that has to be okay too, because there's people in there. I don't know. It's like whether to use a sledgehammer or the key. Yeah, we could use a sledgehammer for sure, but maybe yeah. let's try the key first. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Yeah. It's painful. It's painful. It is painful. It is painful, but it also requires us to be really honest with ourselves about what are we for. And I remember years ago, I just remembering another conflict. It's a little bit different subject, but I was I was invited in to do some work with a client that was producing a product that I throughout my life, always had a lot of difficulty with as a pacifist. I right? love how diplomatic would be right now, but good job. I know. It was a bullet company. And I, to this day, am an the blender, everybody. Right. <laughs> Actual bullets. <laughs> and I'm particularly passionate. I don't, I'm not against our right to bear arms. I'm against semi-automatic weapons being in the hands of citizens. That's mm -hmm. my, people know my stance. Those are weapons of war, not weapons of peace. And so I was really challenged with my own ethics around what should I do with this company that actually those bullets are used, I'm sure, in semi-automatic weapons. And I made a decision to do the piece of work that we were contracted for because I wanted to support the change they were trying to make, which was around leaders who were good for people. And I figured that those leaders, knowing themselves better, being able to be more self-aware, being able to be better for people would probably help them have the conversations they needed to have around what their product is used for. And that was, a, like morally, that was hard for me. But it, it, in order to do that, I had to be self-aware enough to be like, Mo, you have to lay your own personal values down around what are you going for? Mm -hmm. But there's those are very personal decisions. And I appreciate that you bring up those issues where there may be a conflict so that we can look at it and ask, are we the best? positioned mm -hmm. to serve this client this time or is it out of sync enough that it's not our it's not our journey right now and that's the other piece is that it, sometimes it's just not yeah and that's got to be okay too we're only a sledgehammer in this situation or yes. we don't know yeah. where the freaking keys are people <laughs> <Right? They're> lost. <laughs> okay so here's my very last piece and i know i gotta let you go but there's this really beautiful new yorker or the new york times piece 
that just came out about intergenerational friendships in life mm-hmm. and at work. And that's you and me. So yeah. the female quotient just put out this piece about like mm-hmm. summarizing it, that intergenerational friendships empower us to break free from the age barriers, preconceived notions, and societal expectations in life and at work. They provide a platform for wisdom to be shared, stories to be exchanged, and perspectives to be broadened. When different generations come together, magic happens. And that they play a vital role in building stronger communities where compassion, support, and empathy become the driving forces by fostering understanding between generations. We lay the foundation for a more inclusive and cohesive society where everyone has a place and a voice. And the example they give is Rebecca and Keeley in Ted Lasso. Love that. Um, But I've been thinking about that too because I think there's – sometimes we don't want to call a spade, I think, in this world – We want to call it like mentorship or we want to call it, we want to put a name on it as opposed to being like Mo and May are friends Mm. or like intergenerational friendship is good. (laughs) It's fine. It's okay to have. And actually it's good. And that for some reason we have to draw these lines between generations that they just don't get us or they haven't learned enough or they don't have enough experience or something. So I'm interested in what you think of that. Number one. And number two, are you seeing it in play with any systems that they're they're using it to their advantage pairing intergenerational workers oh i love it I, and i'm really interested in looking at that piece actually i'm also very intrigued about it's something that piece is particularly focused on inter, intergenerational relationships between women people who identify as women and i think that's powerful partly because particularly when we talk like the two generations that you and I represent, I think there's a history of baby boomers, baby boomer women who rose to their careers during the women's liberation movement have often, I think, sometimes had a mindset, and I'm probably speaking more for white women, which is more of the population that are my group, that there's not enough seats at the table. So if we get one, we got to keep it which hasn't always lent itself well to turning around and reaching back to the women who follow us. And I think it's critical that we do because there there are more seats available at the table. There, there must be for all, for women, for men and women of color, et cetera. So I, I think that if we don't, yeah, I think we have to debunk this idea of scarcity and also recognize how we got here. For me, that's where intergenerational partnership is so critical is that we... I was talking about this with a client today. I asked the question, have, did you have someone who helped you shape and define the career that's unfolded for you? And every single person raised their hands. So we all have someone who yeah. saw us and was like, dude, you could do this. Or have you tried this? Or I think you're amazing at this. And so when we think about that fact, it's like I ought to be, if I'm a mature career person, I ought to be thinking about that for the younger people who are working for and with me in order to be that person for them because someone was for me. Yeah. And, and so I think that's such an important role. The other piece is it's mutual. And I love that about the Rebecca Keeley friendship in Ted Lasso because they both benefited. And I think this is sometimes we forget about, sometimes when we think about mentoring is we think of mentoring as like the wise sage offers all the wisdom to the young. <laughs> Not actually what happens with Rebecca and Keeley. They have mutual, a mutual relationship that they are both benefiting from. And that's how I see our partnership. That's how I see partnership with the other millennials at work in our company, where it's like, I am learning just as much from you as you are probably learning from me. It's different. We're learning different kinds of things. I'm just struck, May, even in this conversation, like all the things that you just called from the internet for us to talk about. <laughs> I'm like, dear Lord, I'm behind. Like I clearly have not been noticing. And some of that's because I actually, as a highly sensitive person, I actually don't watch the news. I don't watch Twitter. I get overwhelmed by it easily. So it's not a big strength of mine to stay current on yeah. things. So when you bring me these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, how interesting. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm learning. And you're more fluent in that space. You're able yeah. to be in there. And so I think that the mutuality matters. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would totally agree. And it feels a little bit like playing a video game to me in terms of telling people what the codes are. Share the secrets. I think it's this also seems like a big hack to breaking down the patriarchy of rugged individualism is be in it together. Share the secrets. And that there is there's ad it's actually quite advantageous if everybody knows what the codes are. It's okay. If everybody knows what the codes are, I 
yeah, it, this is a very, hopefully this is a connected tangent, but it reminds <laughs> me of the Enneagram. Oftentimes I feel like everybody is like me. I have a little bit of a foggy view because you and I are both sevens. So I do think everybody's like me, but <laughs> my husband is not, he's a six and I'm like, oh, this is real. And he's like, no, it's not real for me. And that Yes. Just because we share the codes with everybody doesn't mean we're all headed to the same goal. It's okay. <laughs> like we can all go where we're going, but it would be okay if we lo- unlock the door. So yeah. and like, also, we're not all the same. Yes. And also just to even reveal that like we figured something out that worked at the time and space yeah. that we figured it out, but actually for you today, that might be different. But here's something that I learned. And then you could take that or I could take that and be like, how does that stand up against what I am currently learning? I think it's so powerful. And I have a story for you on this. When I, when my mom passed, my mom, Margaret passed in 2021 and a year out, some of her closest friends could not make it to her memorial. So a year after on the anniversary of her memorial service, I invited four of the women that I knew were her closest friends, ah. a Zoom meeting. And they ranged in age from about 61 to 92. <laughs> it was Fascinating. And we had a conversation about Margaret, my mom, and about what, how we knew her. And I asked them all, what was one of your favorite memories? What did you really appreciate about her? And like, how did she bug you? And these women had such powerful stories. They were all very consistent around how they experienced Margaret. But I was very struck. One of them, the youngest one of the group, a woman named Diane, was currently actually caretaking her elderly mother. And she's probably closer in age to me than than she was to my mom. And she was relaying this as, and one of the reasons why is that I had such a strong relationship with your mom. Another one of the women was met my mom because my mom was the carer for her parents when they were in a nursing home. Wow. So there was this, there's just a lot of cross-generational connection about being women in the times they were learning from and which with each other that I found really precious and dear. And these were not professional relationships. They met, they might've known each other also through work, but they were just friendships that had lasted over the years. And I think that's just so important that we have. And also I was struck that my mom's friends, some of them outlived her partly because they were younger. And I'm like, you don't want all, I don't want all my friends to be my age (laughs) at the same time. Like, Yeah. So I have friends across the age. I think we give each other cred too. There's that. Like yeah. I've been welcomed into rooms because you brought me there and probably vice versa. Right? That is how we I know how to do a wheel. Yeah. <laughs> are welcomed into rooms because of each other. And that is how we keep being in the rooms sometimes. And I'm grateful for that. Okay. This has been fun. Thank you so much for all the research you did to get us there. Fascinating conversation and so many threads to pull on. There you go, everybody. I love you, Mo. Thank you.